Today's pod is an old time. A lot of jaw love and what real love means. Dirk Nowitzki, his career. Book is out. We talked to Dirk, man. What else do you need to know? And life advice with another Dirk story. It's the Ryan Russillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older, 18 plus in D.C., and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode of the Ryan Rosilla Podcast is brought to you by McDonald's. McDonald's French fries changed my life. They taught me to want. They taught me the taste of anticipation. There's no wrong way to eat a French fry from McDonald's unless you're eating my French fries. Get your favorite McDonald's fries today. Where else do you start today except for one of the most electric guards in the NBA? Uh, Huge night for him, and that's Markel Fultz returning to the Orlando Magic the first time over a year. Uh, we will ask Rudy about that maybe some other time this week. Now, we have to start with John ja Morant, who has now become appointment viewing. Uh, and it's awesome to see this. It's awesome to see it play out nationally where somebody that I think all of us just enjoy so much. He goes for 52 last night against the Spurs. A career high for him. First ever 50-point game in Memphis history. Uh, that's after he set his own career high this past weekend against the Bulls with 46. So he's on an absolute tear. Uh, last night's game, he had 13 straight in the fourth quarter. And it was actually still kind of a game with San Antonio. Uh, I don't think he missed a shot in the fourth quarter on top of everything else. He hit a bunch of threes. He had a dunk on Yaka Pertle where people were afraid Pertle was going to retire after the fact. And by the way, Pertle's not terrible. Uh, it was one of those vicious jaw dunks where there's another level that he gets to. I don't know how many of you remember the Tom Chambers dunk over Mark Jackson. Uh, it was basically the dunk for not only that season, but also uh, the video game because they basically were like, there was this move you could play in the game where if you took off with Tom Chambers, you would just go up higher than everybody else, which seems a little ridiculous because Jordan was playing at the time too. Uh, and the reason he went up so high on that is because he, Mark Jackson helped kind of lift him up beyond what a guy would normally do, any human would do. And Ja has more moments right now that don't seem human uh, than, than maybe anybody in the league. And I don't know. I don't know who keeps track of the non-human movements, but that's what we have with Ja. His attacking is relentless. I don't think anybody splits a double team better than he does. You think you have him just walled off. You think that there's no way he can get through, and then he gets through you. You think that he's done on his drive and the angle is cut off and he's going to have to turn and kick it back out to somebody else. Then he takes kind of this Euro Ginobili step and then gets the ball up and around and flips it from a different angle that you weren't expecting, and it happens all the time. And he plays with this viciousness too, which I love because we want all of our stars to have confidence, right? We want them to have a little bit of attitude, maybe a lot of attitude, but we don't want so much confidence and so much attitude that it detracts from the actual game and in those winning moments. And he appears to have the perfect combination of all these elements that you want in the personality of a superstar. Very early in the season, when they started putting this together and going on a roll and you started to see this big statistical jump from Ja, I mean, here's just one example. PER isn't always the best, but it's really telling for perimeter players. His PER has jumped from like, hey, you know, it's pretty good as Ja. 
like mid-teens, 16, 17 to 25. It's jumped like 10 points, eight or nine, 10 points, depending on you know, how you track the last two years. But there also was a joy that this team had where not only did they feel connected, which is very important in basketball. I use it when I'm super complimentary of basketball teams. They're connected. They know everybody's role. Everybody seems to be kind of happy in the role. And this is a Memphis team that's deep, too, and has a lot of pieces. But there's a joy and attitude that they have where they're, whether it was talking shit to LeBron James, just saying, hey, we're not afraid of you anymore, going into New York City and being like, whatever. Like, this is this is you guys want to mess with us. Go ahead because we think we're that good. And they're knocking on some doors here. Now, when the MVP race comes through, it, Jaws going to now having guys like me, uh, you know, or some that are still on television, you'll be saying Jaws, the clear MVP. And what's the rule we hate more than anything else is that when somebody makes these arguments, it says it's not even close. The whole point of this MVP race this season, as I've said numerous times, is that it is actually really close, but it's not to be dismissive of Ja, it's just that the next he's the next guy up for that now becomes the unanimous dude. And there is something to be said of having popular opinion and certainly the people on television that have MVP votes. Um, it's almost sometimes where people like kind of the mob mentality could kind of shift in a certain direction. So to have that momentum is actually important uh, for you potentially winning an MVP. But if we look over the timeline, Durant had a stretch, Steph had a stretch, uh, Jokic just had a stretch where he's still very much in this thing. Embiid then kind of took over for Jokic where it felt like it was the two of them. Embiid is still very much in it as well. And then DeRozan was the most recent guy. What, in just the last week plus, a little before the All-Star break, a little bit after it, where it's like, now DeRozan's actually the guy now. And maybe he is, and maybe he gets votes. But if you were going to look at some of the Jaws stuff, you could say, well, he's missed 14 games, but he's played more games than Embiid. Um, he's going to play more games than Durant. I think Steph's kind of out of the conversation at this point. Giannis gets criminally overlooked, even though his numbers are basically identical to what he's done in previous years, and he's going to have a career high in win shares and PER. And by the way, Giannis is also hitting his free throws again. So I think Ja is in this conversation, but you know, when you can look at some of the standing stuff, you're like, well, what, what if Chicago's a one seed? It's DeRozan. Well, Memphis has a better record right now than Philadelphia in Chicago, which is my point of really saying have an open mind about all of this stuff. Because as somebody that did do this for a long time and knows what it's like to sit in those pre-show meetings and know that the sexiness that next morning, be like, hey, what do you want to say about John? And you're like, well, I, you know, this is where I always sucked at it. And I'd go, he's in the MVP conversation. I think Memphis is really good. And I fucking love John Morant. What do you want me to say? It's like, well, could you say he's definitely the MVP? I'd be like, well, no, I don't really believe that. Like, I, I, we still have a ways to go here. We've got like 20 games. Do you want to say Memphis is going to win the title? Uh, no, I don't. I'm not going to say they're incapable, but that would seem really dismissive of maybe the deepest top of contenders we've had in a really long time. Okay, do you want to say that Jaws may be better than any other point guard? Uh, no, I mean, he might be but I still think I'm probably going to take Steph. All right, would you say that you would take Ja to start your team over anyone else right now? Uh, I don't know that I would do that either. I, I really like him. I think it's clear the first five minutes of his monologue, I really like him, but I don't know that I would do those things. And the thing is, is none of that shit really matters. It's sexy. It gets the attention the next day. Everybody's in a hurry to kind of do some of these things, but none of that stuff really matters. And I'm going to make a point here. When I've taught college football over the years, I probably seen more forgiving for certain programs and certain coaches uh, than, than others would. Because my grade or, or my gauge of who you are as a program and as coach is 
Are you in the mix to play in a conference championship? And does that mean that you're in the mix then to be in the playoff? And that means if you're sort of flirting with that playoff mix and maybe not even get in or win your conference championship, if you're one of those programs that feels like they're flirting with it for about 10 weeks of the season, then that's really the best that you can do unless you have the standard of, say, an Alabama or a Clemson or maybe even now Georgia. But Georgia's a good example because Georgia plays in a national championship, loses an epic game to Tua. You know, they're 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 hanging around, but they still got Bama in the way. But I'm looking at going, how are you guys knocking this program? Like they're right there, talent wise. And I know people didn't like Kirby until he won a national championship, or at least they were frustrated by him until he won it. But I'm thinking this is all you can really ask for. They are in the mix, and this is very real. This is a real thing. It's not the flashy things. This is real, and this matters. And it might work out for them. It might not. But the fact that they're in this group of teams is really what you're hoping to do when you're building a program. And that's what's important, the real stuff. Memphis has a real guy. I don't know how long that list is. I usually would argue that it's like six or seven players that can absolutely change the course of your franchise. That list is rarely 10 players long. I think it's usually a lot shorter than that, but we'll flirt with different things. But even if you look at the timeline of, say, a Trey Young, Trey Young comes in, okay, is it going to be good? Is it going to be a disaster? It was way too negative for him early on. Remember the Summer League and all that kind of stuff. And then you could see how talented he is. It's like, okay, he's scoring. But then last year it felt real because they beat the Sixers. They play in the Eastern Conference Finals. And now you're starting to feel like if you're a Hawks fan, you have something to build on. Same thing happened with Giannis. Giannis took a little while. And it was like, okay, there's some exciting plays and some cool videos that break out, but how good of a basketball player is he? And then he transitions into, holy shit, I think we really have something here. And Milwaukee, despite their frustrations and the playoff exits, certainly the one against Miami a couple of years ago, you at least had a building block, somebody that changes who you are as a franchise, the culture, all these things that we could throw around a lot. But you know what? Like culture is actually important. It's just that people pretend that they can just invent it out of thin air. So whatever the sexy things that you hear about job that you're going to hear, like you're going to hear a ton of it. And he deserves all of those things. But the way I would look at it is saying Memphis is real. They have one of these franchise changing players. And honestly, that's way more important than some of the sexy headlines where I think it'd be really aggressive statements about job. And as sexy as those all may be, they're not nearly as important as now looking at Memphis as a real team, a team you have to take serious in the playoffs, a player like Ja that can close out maybe anybody with his offensive attacking style, a deep team that seems to love playing with each other. And it really feels like a team that, you know, I'm always a little cautious about young teams in the playoffs. The history there isn't great, but it it may feel like they, they've jumped the line here a little bit. And that very well could be the case with whatever happens with Phoenix. If Golden State doesn't have enough size, if Draymond doesn't come back and look as good as he did the first half of the season, considering all the games he's missed, all the East teams that I keep changing my mind about and not wanting to give up on some and completely dismissing others. The most important part of the Memphis conversation is that they are real. They need to be taken that way, even though that's nearly as not as much fun as some of the other things you're going to hear this week. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, 
you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. This episode is brought to you by Viore. It's time to ditch your old workout fit. Seriously, just let them go and try Viore clothing instead. Their active wear is unbelievable. Sometimes I wear it and I go, do I look too good? I don't want to be at this peak level of awesomeness in their joggers every single day. This is going to be hard to maintain, but that's what the joggers do for you. Whether you're sort of business cash, whether you're just around the house, whether you're working out, whether you're getting on a plane and you're going to be in your seat for a long time, the joggers just give you a hug for the entire flight. It's soft. It's comfortable. You're never going to want to take them off. Incredible versatility. You can wear it while taking part in different kinds of exercises, running, training, swimming, yoga, and more. Viore yoga class, that just makes sense. The Sunday jogger is the number one go-to. And of course, the core short out and out. Get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viore.com slash Ryan, R-Y-E-N. That's V-U-O-R-I.com slash Ryan. Dirk Nowitzki joins us. Book is The Great Nowitzki, Basketball and the Meaning of Life by Thomas Pletzinger. So let's do this, man. Let's go back uh, where this book also goes back to the mid-90s. You're a teenager in Germany. You're seven feet tall. You're working out with Holger. And you're trying to figure out this basketball thing. Did you have any idea? Did you know, like, what were those years like prior to the Hoop Summit and then ultimately the draft? Like, when you're going, wait, am I actually this good? I mean, it was a, a strange time meeting Holger and, you know, I wasn't quite, I'm, I'm, I'm German. So I think by nature, we're a little more negative and we have doubts. And so I wasn't sure whether it was good enough and uh, even to play in the NBA or let alone make it. Um, so, but, you know, Holger was, was big in my life there. When I met him when I was 15, 16, he taught me how to play, how to shoot, how to move. Uh, and uh, he was sort of my mentor that I needed at the time to get through school and, and get to the next level. And, and he showed me how to work hard. And so, you know, a couple of weeks ago at the Jersey retirement, when I, when I said to him that how much he meant to me and without him, I probably would have not made it to the stage. I, I really meant that he was he was vital in my life and my career. And I met him at a great time where, you know, the teenager years are really tough. As you know, you have all these things in your mind and you want to, you want to do and, and, uh, that gets you off track. And so he was, he was there and, and made sure that I was always focused and, 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 and got to live my dream. So uh, I do owe him, owe him a lot. And even my first couple of years in the league, when things weren't going well at all, um, my first year was super tough, the lockout year, and he was always a phone call away. So, it was it was tough times, obviously going through. But looking back at now, these years were really vital for me to understand and how to work, how to be a professional, and how to make it in the league. So it, those were those were vital lessons. So sixteen, you're with Wurzburg, right? But you're it's a men's team, but it was a second division. And then I was mm-hmm. reading about it, like they would have beers, and you, you would just be like, I just want to have one because I don't want to be like an idiot kid. <laughs> I mean, that had to be just an odd dynamic to be sixteen now throwing this thrown into this man's world. Yeah, so we're in, we're playing in the men's team, and some of them were like a few of them were professionals that so they were paid decently, and some of them were students. Uh, we had a farmer on the team uh, that like was running a full on farm with with horses and 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 during the day he was he was uh, doing all his wheat and stuff. So 
Uh, I mean, it was uh, it's, it's a great dynamic. Uh, you know, the, the the club sports, it's just a different feeling than, uh, than just the, the system over here where you play in school and then maybe AAU. But, uh, you know, the, that's the system that's in Europe. With, with you join a club and when you're good enough, you move up and you play with with basically grown men. And it was uh, it was a crazy time. man. I mean, I was 15. I was soaking it all in. I played with some of my guys that I watched for, for years now on the same team and, and they were having fun. Obviously, they were professionals, but no, they, they were never going to go to the next level. So they were having they were competing, but also having fun at the same time, going out after every game on the weekend. And, and so it was uh, it was a fun time to go through. And I, I tried to stay focused as much as I could. So you went to actually, because you were starting to travel a little bit more, you saw the 96 Olympics in person, right? You just went to go check it out. Uh, what was that kind of feeling? Knowing the dream team four years prior was probably maybe the first experience you got to maybe even thinking about basketball. Yeah, so 92 Olympics changed a lot for me. You know, I always tell the story. Charles had number 14 in the Olympics, and then I changed my number 14. And then that's why uh, it had a big impact on, on my basketball career and how I followed it and how I got excited about it. And in 96, I happened to be in, uh, in Georgia for like a little high school tournament. The Peach Jam? Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I was I was there and I think it was in Savannah, Georgia that year. And then on the way back, we flew from Atlanta. So I got to go to one or two games uh, in the Olympics and I was sitting all the way up in, in the in the Georgia Dome, I think I remember. And uh, and just watching that. So I was a huge basketball fan in the 90s, try to catch all NBA games at night, you know, get up, watch the finals, watch the All-Star game. You know, uh, just I was uh, I was all in, all in on basketball. It was a a dream of mine to to play there and and watch as many games as I could. There was a time, I think, in the 90s where I knew every player on every roster. I mean, that's how how deep I was into it. And uh, it, it was a great time to me in the 90s where, amazing you know the music the the movies uh the, the nba style how they played i mean the 90s to me is is the best ever so you win the mvp in the under 18 tournament you know olga's starting to just get in your ear a little bit more being like hey this is real i know there's a bunch of different things like you graduate high school around this time patino was on the road like patino at that point is going to be running the celtics so what happened in this secret workout because i'm from new england and, and lived in boston for a while and i want to get to the dallas part obviously but there's there's so many people that still think that you were supposed to be a celtic that is that is true that did happen uh i met up with with rick and he was on his vacation and i'm not sure all this is actually uh legal uh, <laughs> uh but i met up with rick and we did uh, we did a private workout and he really likes what he saw and so i guess he said uh you know i'm we're going to draft this this european kid but they had pick number 10 and um you know at the time i think it was a little risky because i wasn't even sure whether i was going to go to the nba because uh i wasn't sure my body was ready you know like we mentioned earlier i only played the second division in germany and so I, I still was thinking about maybe going to college or or staying in Europe uh, for for a few more years. And so that was the very that was a very risky route to take for some of these NBA clubs that were actually interested in me. And then uh, you know I guess Mavericks and, and and Donnie Nelson at the time was was an assistant coach of the Hoop Summit when I played there. And so I guess you know he liked what he saw there. And so I actually never ended up falling. To, to the 10th spot. So 
they uh, they traded for me from Milwaukee, drafted me. They had a deal going, uh, and then it was actually a great move. They got uh, for tractor trailer uh, and and somebody that got me and Steve Nash at the same time on the same on the same day, and that obviously ended up being a great move for for us, and that really set us up for for the next couple of years. But. Uh, you know, I think Boston is a great, great sports town, and I think I would have had a lot of fun there too. But uh, I think it worked out for for myself. Yeah, I, th- I think it worked out for you too. If I can just back up though, before we get to the hoop summit part, because there's two things: you had to enter the military, right, for service, mm-hmm. like it's your duty at that age. And mm-hmm. in the book, you're clearly miserable because you're not you're not playing any basketball. You're seven feet. You're walking around. You're like, what am I doing? But then you ended up playing against Barkley in some exhibition. So what yes. happened when you played against Charles Barkley? So uh, they were on a Nike promotion tour and it was actually called the Hoop Heroes. And uh, they brought a team with Gary Payton, Vin Baker, Scotty Pippen, Jason Kidd, Charles Barkley. Uh, they came over and did a promotional tour, played two games in Germany and one in Paris. And uh, that was that was super exciting. I was just uh, I was all, I was done with basic training in my army. So I was in a sports company for the rest of eight months where I had time. I could practice every day. And so I was able to to go to those games and be a part of that. And, um, you know, just it was a wide open game. There was no really defense played. There was the, 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 the gyms were packed. So it was just a fun promotional basketball thing. And and of course, you know, there was there was wide open. So I had a few jumpers and, and, I, and I had a few dunks. And that's where Charles after afterwards, the press conference said the famous lines that he can get me into Auburn. And uh, if if I wanted to, if I wanted to, and uh, you know that of course at the time, you know Charles is my hero. I'm wearing number fourteen because he had fourteen in the Olympics, and uh, and so to just to hear those words, I was I was in awe and, and super shocked. And obviously things didn't work out that way. I didn't go to Auburn. I went. I uh, decided then to go straight uh, to the league, and uh, that worked out that way. But just to see those guys up close and see how they play, how they prepare, and and just to be on the court with them was uh, was a huge step for me and and and, and a super awe moment. But did, didn't he also ask you like, what the hell are you doing in the military? <laughs> he didn't understand it, right? Yeah, there was that. You know, uh, yeah, no, they, you didn't understand at the time. I think uh, it was mandatory for 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 Germany uh, at the time uh, to to go when you, when you're done with high school to to go in the military. So I, I did a ten month stint. And that's why if I would have gone to college, I would have been. Uh, an older, uh, uh, obviously, freshman in, in, in college. So I was already, by the time I came to the NBA, I was already 20 at that because I had a, a year in the Army. So, but yeah, nobody really understand that fact. But, you know, the, the good thing about the Army, I only had to do two months of basic training, which was every day. And that was that was a grind. That's what uh, what's described in the book. And then the other eight months, I was able to train. I must live at home. You know, that's when I really started to be a professional. I was able to train in the morning, train at night, um, and, and really go after it. And, and I learned a lot in those uh, seven, eight months. I was able to train with Holger on a daily basis. So that, that really took me over the top. No, you're right. The Holger being with you at every stop, and and the hoop summit, it's funny because he's like behind the bench, and you're like, what the hell's going on? But Donnie Nelson, the 
Johnny, you know, Jr. is is on the staff and it's in their backyard. And so all these things are happening so fast. You're still, like you say, here in, in the book. And I remember at the time, I was like, is this guy even coming over? Because I can't express, you know, 20 plus years ago to the audience that's younger, we're like, who's this fucking guy? <laughs> like, what's his deal? Like, is because we just weren't ready for it. We weren't ready for it. You know, it was it was the beginning that the the European explosion, the Skidish Vili's going five overall because you turned out to be so good. Like this stuff had to happen. You remember that? You remember that? Oh, come oh, on, yeah. man. Do you ever talk to Skidish Vili? <laughs> you should probably uh, be thanking you. <laughs> I've talked to Skeeter for a while, but no, I haven't seen him in a minute. No, I haven't seen him in a minute. Okay, so how close was it for real for you potentially going to Stanford or Cal? So I visited, I, I did a trip while I was in the army. They allowed me to make a trip and I did a little um, college visit trip and I visited uh, Stanford, I visited Cal and I visited Kentucky actually with, um, with Toby Smith, uh, coach at the time. And uh, I really loved what I saw. I mean, I, I, a lot of guys that I played with over the years, they always say their best time was a couple of years in college. So, you know, part of me regrets a little bit not, not trying it at least for one year. But I think for my development, I'm not sure it would have been good. You know, in college back then, it was still the big guys need to lift weights and they need to go on the block. And there was not, uh, I think that would have been not great for my development. So uh, I think I, I did, uh, thinking back, it was the right decision to go right in the league and go to go to the Nelsons, who, as you know, had a different philosophy. And you know, they were already, it was, it was still... It was just uh, he Donnie always saw that the, the sport different. You know, it's smaller guys who everybody can shoot. Everybody needs to use their skill, and it wasn't. Uh, it was a mismatch master, and so that was perfect. That played in my hands. So, I think if I would have gone anywhere else with college or even another NBA team, I'm not sure my skills would have developed the way they did in Dallas. So that was just a perfect fit for for me and my skill set early on in my career. Okay, so we go through the trade, and then, ironically enough, the other pieces, they go grab Nash because Donnie wants you to play wide open. you know. And you're right, mm -hmm. because if it was somebody else, they're probably mad you're not on the block every time. And yeah. I mean, credit to Holger for understanding that you're a new power forward. You're, you're this new thing that we're not even ready for yet. And then you bring mm -hmm. in Nash, who you know wasn't getting a ton of run with Phoenix, so Donnie's like, look, it's going to all work out. It's gonna... And then, as you had said, you thought about maybe staying at, at the higher division in Germany or maybe even playing in like, I, I think it was where you could maybe Madrid or so, you know, maybe one of the top leagues. And then I'll yeah. come over, I'll get my body right. And then everybody's mm -hmm. like, no, no, we're doing it. We're doing it. You have a meeting, y'all hang out. Sounds like you had some beers. You're like, all right, I'm coming to Dallas. And then the <laughs> lockout happens. And so you're basically hanging out, waiting. And then you, what, you get a notice being like, get to Dallas in 24 hours. And that was your rookie year. How hard was that? I mean, it, it was nuts. That whole, the whole period. So I wasn't sure whether I was good enough to come. So right after the draft, Dallas flew me in and I got to meet Steve and Mike and, and, uh, and, you know, the, some of the teammates and they basically said, Hey, we're not a great team. You can develop. There's no pressure at the beginning. Come on over. And, uh, and, and before I had to fly back to Germany after the draft, I had basically had to give them a, a decision. And those were some sleepless nights. Cause I, like I said, I, I'm, I'm a negative guy from, you know, in my personality, I wasn't sure whether it was good enough. And so there were some sleepless nights. And then finally, before I flew back to Germany, I told them, okay, Steve and Mike were so nice. Um, I, I'm not going to try it. And then, uh, and then literally the lockout happened a week later. So. I didn't 
uh, I didn't sign my contract yet. So I was still eligible to play in Germany. So I moved, I went back home. Uh, we couldn't go in the, in the, in our NBA gym anyways. We couldn't practice together. We couldn't scrimmage there. And, and so, um, and so I went, I went back home. I traveled Holger, I played, uh, for my team who now in the meantime got promoted. So we were in the first division now in, in Germany. And so the competition was good, uh, or better, uh, than in the second division. And I was able to live at home with my parents. And I felt I felt comfortable. And then one day, sure enough, every day, you know, we didn't really have the internet back then. So I was checking on, I'm not sure if that's the thing. It's called a video text. So on, on your on your on your uh TV, you can click this thing and then the news come up. And so every morning I check the news on this video text thing on my TV. And one morning I wake up and it says NBA season saved. And now about to about snapped. I was like, oh my God, I got so nervous and anxious. Sure enough, that day Donnie called and said, hey, it's time. It's time to report. And I remember I was like, I was so nervous and almost frightened to come over now and, and have this started uh, starting. So uh, it, it was a, a tough time in my life. And then coming over and then, you know, basically had, what, 10 days, not even a training camp. Uh, I didn't even know all the plays. I didn't know all the defensive coverages. And then, boom, started the season, right? So it was uh, it was tough. And then, as you know, it was a 50-game season in two and a half months. So there was, there was a stretch where we had six games in eight days, um, you know, in six different cities. And coming from Germany, I had one game a weekend. Uh, so it, it was a different world. Uh, you know, I, my, my language wasn't great. But I didn't understand all the English yet. So... Uh, life was uh, full of challenges, and it was, it was a tough season for me to, to get going. But, you know, by the end of the first season, we were kind of out of the playoffs, and, and old Nell said, hey, you know, I'm going to put you back in the start lineup and, you know, get some confidence going, get some games. There's no pressure now. And and that, that was big for me. Uh, I always remember the game in Phoenix. I had 28 points in my rookie year. Uh, and, you know, that showed me. Hey, that gave me a lot of confidence if you work hard and, you work hard this summer. I had summer league. I had uh, European championship. And if you keep working on your game, I think you can actually make it in this league. And so, going through it at the time was uh, was tough. Uh, you know, missed home. Uh, it was uh, the culture shock. Uh, the, the, the the game was so different, more physical, and faster than I'd ever imagined. Uh, going through really sucked. Uh, but looking back now, it was a very, very important time in my life where I learned a lot and, and picked up a lot. Because again, you know, I can't express this enough that you were a pioneer, um, not only as an international player, but your approach to the game. Who was the meanest to you as like a superstar vet who just thought you sucked? It was just so dismissive. There have to be a few good stories there. Yeah, I mean, on, on my team, we had some old school guys that uh, that obviously didn't really want the young German now all of a sudden to take over. So, you know, I had Cedric Sabalos on the team uh, who was who was tough on me and always kicked my butt in practice every day. Uh, we had Robert Pack, who was, uh, uh, who was a veteran at the time, and he actually had number 14. And so I kind of approached him like, can I get number 14? And he looked at me like I was out of my mind. And that's why... Uh, 41 came about because I then I just ended up flipping the numbers because he had 14 and and he looked at me like I was absolutely crazy when when I wanted 14. Uh, we had Hadrod Williams who was a, who was a legend and been around forever. 
I couldn't understand a word of his Louisiana accent. So he tried to teach me something. I'm just, I'm just standing there looking around like, what is this guy telling me? I don't understand his accent. We had AC Green, who's been around for like 19 years at the time. Uh, so he was always tough for me. And, and so you know, I remember my rookie year, you know, I, you had to do a couple of chores and carry the backs to guys' rooms, uh, which I don't think they do anymore now. And, and, and shoot around when we were in opposing big arenas. You know, I always had, before we stretch, I had to put all the balls up. So AC Green is like, come here, it's time to stretch and shoot around. So I walk over, he was like, boom, he toe punts the ball somewhere in the 85th row of the arena. And I'm like, go get the ball. So I'm there, everybody's already stretching. I'm walking around the arena trying to chase balls. And, uh, you know, they, there was some, some of that going on, the, 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 the rookie, uh, rookie uh, stuff. And, but you know, it's it's it was something I had to go through. It wasn't it wasn't really fun standing out in the freezing cold. We landed somewhere on the east coast, and I'm I'm doing the bags outside. I'm like I'm like shaking, getting the bags on the bus, delivering the guys' bags to their rooms, and uh, that's, uh, that was my first year. That was uh, it was interesting, and the guys, you know, picked their spots of being hard on me, but also trying to support me so I could still make it in this league. How I know he's one of your closest friends, uh, Steve Nash, for him to come over, um, you know, look, he's from Canada, so it's not like he's from Germany here, but what was it like those first couple of years as you were both trying to figure out if you were good enough to be in this league? What, what was that friendship like that early? Well, Steve obviously uh, was uh, had a little bit of head start. He played college for four years in Santa Clara, and then he got actually drafted by Phoenix, and he was behind KJ and behind Jason Kidd in Phoenix. Uh, got to practice there, got, got to learn from these guys, but never really played that much. So uh, then we, we got, he got traded uh, to Dallas on the same day I got drafted. And I don't know, we just had a similar background. He loved soccer. I loved soccer. So we had something to talk about. And, you know, we lived close to each other uh, first couple of years. So we just developed, developed this friendship. And worked super hard every night i can remember and off nights we went back to the gym let's play horse let's play one-on-one let's play uh all shooting games and so it was a fun period of off hanging out getting to know each other uh having a friendship and a relationship and then uh uh you know and, and also working hard and then the mass we were starting to get better the mass was starting to get better and uh the first time the mass were uh, getting in the playoffs and then Mark buying the team was a big turnaround and all this, all this started to happen my first couple of years in this league. And it was, it was a fun time. It was a fun time there turning around the franchise with Mark, you know, you know, getting us a new arena, getting us a new plane, you know, putting Dallas back on, on the basketball map after a shaky nineties decade where they were a little bit of a laughing stock. So that was a fun time to be there when when we turned this franchise around and 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 Steve and Mike who are still great friends of mine were a big part of of my early success and making me feel welcome and and showing me how to be professional on but also off the floor how how do you speak with the media how do you act on community services how you know how you're in your community um and so all that I learned from these great professionals and they're they're still great friends to this day did you have any idea who this Ross Perot guy was who had previously owned the team before Mark? Like, I can't imagine somebody in American trying to explain to you who Ross Perot was. 
Uh, I did not. Uh, so when I was drafted, the Nelsons came to Germany to see me, talk to me, meet me, see my background, and then fly me over to the States and kind of, you know, uh, get used to or, or meet some, some people in Dallas. So when the Nelsons came, actually Ross Perot flew in to Germany, to my hometown to, to come for a press conference. And so that's when I met Ross for, for the first time and uh, super nice guy, super, super supportive. But at the time, I had no idea. I mean, I, we didn't have internet. I didn't know anything really about, about Dallas. I mean, uh, all I've seen was a little bit of the TV show that my parents maybe watched and I walked <laughs> by. So I'm thinking I'm getting there. There's cowboys and, you know, rodeos and, and I actually got there and I'm like, wow, this is this is a real city with like skyscrapers and everything. I, I had really no, no idea, no clue what what to expect and, and uh, how how things are going to play out. So it was just like a leap in, in, in cold water and, and, and figure it out. So but yeah, Ross, uh, Ross was cool. And then, of course, Mark bought my team and um, second, my end of my second year. And then obviously everybody knows the, the relationship we developed and the friendship we developed after. Yeah, did other people think it was weird you were such good friends with the owner? You know, I always say uh, Mark was young at the time. He was like 40s, whatever, when he bought the team. He was a, a super basketball fan. He, he had season tickets already before. And so he was a diehard fan. And he came to every practice. He came to every game. He flew with us on, on the plane, the road games. So I don't know. He was just always around. And he was a big fan. And so we, we had a lot of fun. And we played we played horse and one-on-one sometimes after practice. And we just developed a, a, a good relationship. And... Um, you know, I always tell a story. Not a lot of team owners would come to their players' bachelor party, but he actually came to my bachelor party. So uh, that, that I think that shows uh, the, the relationship that we we developed over those years. And I owe him so much. And how he took he always helped me off the floor if there was stuff with, with my family, and of, of course there's normal issues. And he was always there for me, and then I, I do owe. Uh, Mark a lot and we, we still have a great relationship. So you make an all-star team your fourth year in, all-star every year from 2001 to 2012 um, and we all remember the 2006 NBA Finals. You're up two games and nothing. You're up 12 with eight and a half minutes to go. Blow the lead. You lose four straight. What was that moment like for you <laughs> as a player knowing what, what you weren't able to accomplish? You know, 06 uh, I was super frustrated after Miami came back on us. But you know what? I felt like I was just getting into my prime. Uh, I felt like I was playing some of my best basketball. I'm thinking, we're going to be there every year now. You know, we got this. We're a good team. I can carry the team there. And I wasn't actually that frustrated after 06. Of course, it was super tough. Uh, but I felt good about where we were as a franchise and where I was at playing at my highest level. So I kind of brushed it off like, okay, well, we'll be back. Well, we'll make this again. And then we followed this up with an unbelievable season, 06 or 07, which was my MVP year. Uh, we won 67 games. We're the number one seed, uh, getting ready to roll. Um, uh, we had the Spurs number that year. I think we beat them three out of four, which was our biggest rival. We felt good about that uh, matchup. So I'm thinking in my head, this is our year. This is, this is our year. This is when we're going to win it all. And we run into this bus of, of a hot uh, Warriors team. 
who had coached Nelson, who was our coach there, and he knew exactly all of our weaknesses and my weaknesses, and and he exploited all of them. Uh, and so we ended up losing to the Warriors in the first round. We were the first one seed at the time to lose in a seven-game series. And I got to say, that year I was more disappointed uh, than, and than losing the finals in 06 because uh, I had such high hopes. We were the team to beat. I got to say, I didn't leave my house for about, about two weeks. I felt I let my team down. I felt like I let the city down, the franchise. And this was that was probably as frustrated as I was in my career and, and disappointed and just, just, a, just a gut punch. And that took me a while to get over. The 06, like I said, I was okay in my head. I'm like, oh, we're, we'll be here every year now. But the 07 year really took uh, took my heart, ripped my heart out there for a while. And, and that took me a while to to, to recover. And, and I wanted to leave town as soon as possible, get away as far as possible. And the NBA calls, he's like, you got to stick around. There's actually a chance you get in the MVP. And I'm like, I don't even want it. You know, just keep this thing. I'm so embarrassed. I'm like, so then I had to stick around for like 10 days, two weeks in Dallas to wait. Because as you know, back in the days, they presented um, the, 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 the MVP trophy during the second round, the middle of the second round. So I had to wait. I had to wait in Dallas and, and not leave my house and just be frustrated every day. And then I got the MVP. And I remember doing that press conference. I was dreading. And then I was able to leave the, leave the country after that. But, uh, man, that was, uh, that was a super, super tough summer. And I took that one harder than I did the 06 finals loss. That's what made 11 so much better. I mean, it's, it's one thing to win a championship, but to go through those things. Because I remember it, you know, well, and I was on the air with it. Because you were different, you were soft. Because you didn't win, it was only because you were soft. And then mm. that stuff just bothers me because it's so dismissive. Um, and I knew yeah. you weren't soft. You know, like I knew... <laughs> You, you were battling it. with guys all the time, and then it was like, oh, now he's not soft anymore. You know, and it's yeah. all bullshit. It's all playing <laughs> the results. Look, some guys are soft and some guys aren't. I, I never thought that of you, but because you're, you know, a tall white Euro, it's like, oh, well, the, he must be soft because those are the rules. And you beat a Heat team that's the favorite, that is arguably, you know, one of the best groupings that we've ever seen in the prime. How were you able to beat them? How, what was it about you beating this team that everybody felt like they were picking? Well, I, I think we were a little fortunate, and uh, I, I got to say that that was their first year that they were together. I think if you remember, you know, LeBron and Wade and Bosch, they were still trying to figure out how how they play with each other, who's taking the, the big shots, uh, how are they defining their roles. And so I think there was still some question marks in their own minds how this is all going to work. And so... I think we snuck in there at the right time. You know, obviously they were way more talented than us. I think we had a group that had great chemistry. Uh, we knew our roles. We knew who was the defender, our defenders were. We knew where we were going when we needed a big bucket. So uh, we were just a really tight unit at the time and we had a great group and we were just skilled enough, honestly, to to overcome their their skill level and just battling together, uh, battling together and getting some key stops when we needed to, and uh, and, uh, and and we're able to grind it out. But uh, yeah, we like I said, we were we were fortunate. If we would have run into them in year two or maybe year three of them together, I, I think it would have been a different outcome. But you know, fortunate for us, we we didn't have to worry about that, and we saw them. Uh, in year one when they just came together and uh, that was uh, it was our time so 
Uh, just, you know, making them work, uh, making LeBron and Dwayne make, try to make things tough on them. And, uh, and, and, and on the, on the, on the offensive and move the ball. They were so athletic. They closed out to our shooters so fast that I think the first two games we were kind of overwhelmed. We were like, in, in, you know, in the, in the first couple of rounds, we had all these good looks and open shots and things were going well. And then all of a sudden these guys were so athletic on the perimeter. I mean, we, our shooters couldn't even get really in the game. So uh, it was, uh, it was tough, but we, we figured out some ways where we could get our shots and, and uh, we, we were able to beat them, which was obviously made 06 and 07 kind of worth it, you know, for me to, to go through the lowest of the low and, and fight through those times and keep working hard. And I, that motivated me to push harder and then to finally, you know, get to the top that made it even sweeter. And, and all these disappointments I used to as fuel and, and, and work hard to get better. So uh, that made 11, of course, that much sweeter. Just two quick things as we finish up. Did you feel that because it took a long time for the NBA to accept you and then, you know, just all the shit you took because of 06 and then 07, because you're right, the Warriors thing was brutal for you, and then you get to wait around, and then everybody wants to, after you win 67 games, like, oh, this guy shouldn't even be the MVP, and you're like, all right, well, that's that's ridiculous. But then everybody felt like they liked you. You know, winning winning can cure a lot of things, but did you feel then like, hey, I've been an all-star now for a decade, and now I have my ring, that, did you feel it? Did you feel like all of a sudden now everybody loved Dirk, and that even other superstars appreciated and you respected you more as a contemporary than prior to those years? I, I did feel a little more respect, uh, even from when I when I came to the, the All Star game the next year. Uh, even the media, I don't know, it was it was a different uh, different respect level. I think it gave me a lot of confidence too. Uh, walking around uh, my peers, uh, I think it took a lot of weight off my shoulders because I was always I always disappointed every year, and maybe I, maybe I'm not good enough to 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 get us over the top. And then when you get there, though, it's like this sense of, of pride, this sense of satisfaction, you know, now what, now, what can you say? Uh, I think I've had some of that. And if I got to say, it felt good. It felt good the next couple of years to go to the all-star games and, and, you know, and, 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 you know, there's not much you can say about me now. I, I did deliver. So I got to say that that was a, a very a proud moment uh, for myself. Of course. It wasn't just your footwork, your height, you know, the quickness in, in your movements, which is different than just end to end speed. The thing I always thought was amazing about you, and, and you can tell me if this is part of the secret or not. I always felt like as a shooter, your base could be a mess. Your feet could be wrong. Your hips could be, t- your shoulders could not even be square, but it was always the same out of your hands, that it was always the same release at the top. And even though no one would look at the rest of it and say, hey, it's okay to have this all, you know, you had times where it's totally in line, but even when you were totally out of alignment, your your hands and your fingers were always the same. And I, I don't know that I've seen a lot of guys ever do it that way. So I, I think you want to start by having a good balance and that I don't want to have young kids now starting to shoot like that. You have to learn the basics first. And I did, of course, hundreds of thousands of reps to get to the point where I was comfortable uh, to shoot, shooting all these uh, the shots. So that's obviously the work you don't see. Uh, but you're right. Once, once I was, I was getting a little older and had all the experience, I felt like with my height, uh, and, and with my touch that I could always get a good look up. No, whether end of the shot clock, I'm kind of spinning and spinning 
if I just get a quick lean back and I, I just get a quick glimpse of the basket, I still had a good shot or uh, had a good chance of making the shot. And that's part because I had to get my elbow square. I think that's important. I always had needed my elbow to go towards the rim. And then the rest was, was, was just natural to me. It was, I've done it a million times. And so it's, it's really all I needed. It was a split second and, and just a little bit of separation from my defender. And I felt like I, no matter how my body was torqued, I was getting, uh, once my elbow was in the right position, my fingers were on my elbow, my, my follow through was, would do the rest. So, uh, you're right. It's, uh, it's, it's a lot of work that goes in and, and a lot of, you know, I started shooting with Holger when I was like 15 years old. So, you know, that's, that's a lot of work you put in and every day we worked on my shots. Even when I was in my thirties and forties, every day I got to the gym, I, I started, you know, up close and you shoot a couple five, six footers and you work on your touch. And so, you don't go in the gym and you see me shooting a one-legged fadeaway. You know, that's not how I start. Every day you need to work on your skill level and, 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 and polish your shot and work on certain things uh, to, to obviously get to the outcome where you can shoot all sorts of shots. The book is The Great Novitsky Basketball and the Meaning of Life by Thomas Pletzinger. And Dirk, it has been a blast. It's great to catch up with you again. And good luck with the book. Uh, Thank you. It. Yes, good to see you. And thanks for helping out. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Life Advice RR at Gmail. Welcome in, everyone. Kyle, good to have you back, buddy. How was the vacation? It was the best. It was just the best. It was cold, but it was still the best. All right. like hearing that. Positive positive stuff here to get the week started. Although we're now on a Tuesday, Thursday schedule, so we weren't able to check in with Kyle uh, soon enough. Let's get to it. Uh, Bill and I started up the Sunday pods. That's why we're back on Tuesday, Thursdays. And I would say that I appreciate Kyle forwarding me some of these things because it's become a thing now um, where people can't tell if these little one-liners that I throw in the Bill pods are on purpose, if Bill hates them, if Bill doesn't get them, I've, I swear to God, I feel like we get more reaction on these um, than almost anything else I say in those hour and a half, two hour pods. Uh, I know what I'm doing and I think Bill knows what I'm doing and I don't think he hates it. I just don't think he cares. And we just go right over him. I think there's maybe a few times he doesn't get him, but I've, I'll be like so kind of quick under my breath with him. It's, I'm not exactly setting it up for this laugh track either. Um, when we brought up Andrew Bynum, when I said he works out at my gym, which some were accusing of a name drop. I was just telling you, the guy's still around, walking around, <laughs> saying hi to people, and he's really nice. Because uh, I think Andrew Bynum is a guy that's really easy to forget. So I just kind of threw that in there. I don't think anybody goes, you know what? I was kind of on the fence about Rosilla, but he said he saw Andrew Bynum at his gym. I think that guy's fucking awesome. I don't expect that to happen. I don't think anyone's ever said that about me or would put those two things together and say, hear about Rosilla? Fucking ran into Bynum like two years ago at Equinox. That guy's just killing it, huh? 
So uh, I don't think that that would happen. So yeah, I, I don't, I don't think Bill cares. I don't think Bill addresses him. But a lot of people are kind of mis- just. It's not a big mystery, uh, you know. But I'm going to keep doing them. So there you go. You know what I, I would say about the little ones is sometimes we go on zooms and you can't really hear so much, especially if the, if it's the classic Rosillo brand like under the under the breath thing. Sometimes he he might not even hear, it. and I'll be like, "Oh, Rosillo said something there. I wonder what it is. I'll find out later when we get the mic audio." So sometimes if it's like a real low one, we'll we'll just find out when the when we hear the mic version. Little future Rosillo nuggets. Yeah, I think Bill is just kind of like, he. I think he lets you like he thinks you're ha- he knows you're having fun, so he's like, "I'll let Rosillo get his, his few quicks out," and then. But he's got bigger things to fry. Like he's talking about expansion and stuff. He's like, we got to move on. So he keeps the pace going, but he lets you drop these things in there. I think he enjoys it, but I don't think he wants to dwell on it for long. So I think it's good. I don't know if enjoys the right word, but I, I think you're, I think you're right. I think he's like, he okay. appeases you. Yeah. <laughs> he's just like, all right, I'll let get a couple of things out doing. there and make him, make him feel good about himself. Look, I know he hates the long stories. I mean, we, that's, that's been, that's been established. My point would be like on the Jimmy Chitwood thing. I don't actually think I was Jimmy Chitwood in high school. And I'm like, hey, we're doing like 90 plus minutes on Hoosiers. I think I can explore this, this explore the space here for like four or five minutes. I think we're okay. I think we'll all be all right. And that's usually a pretty dividing line because if you really like Bill, then you hate that I do those. And then if you <laughs> if you like me, you think it's hilarious. And so, um, or maybe you don't think it's hilarious. I don't know. I just figure in the 90 minutes to two hours, I'm like, yeah, like, you know, just kind of let something fly. But no, he doesn't seem to enjoy him all that much. So we'll just keep it moving. Just like one of those segments. All right. Uh, okay. We got, we got a couple different ones here. I'm looking forward to them. All right. Uh, I failed my first interview for college newspaper. Okay. Uh, this guy's throwing his name out there, which we're not going to do to you. 570, uh, 57190. 570 would be a weird way to list your height. Uh, I don't lift as much, so I'm trying to get back to my normal weight at 150. Okay. Anyway, aspiring sports writer enrolled at a D1 program. Um, it's not it's not a major program, but they're D1 and everything. All right, so this is a big deal. I write articles for the school newspaper covering games, writing stories. I was assigned by my editor a story covering baseball team captains. This is my first time interviewing players for a story, and boy, could this interview not go any worse. First part, I forgot about the interview entirely. okay not great i had it marked on my calendar but still forgot as i was uh, at my full-time job at the time of the interview and was greeted to a few emails and calls from the pr lady which weren't exactly pleasant (laughs) all right there you just missed it (laughs) yeah no one i'll tell you this no one no one loves that in the business people people aren't huge fans of that uh second i could not connect to the meeting and when I did, I was totally unprepared and asked questions that left the players confused. They were probably laughing at me. Ha ha. <laughs> okay. He threw in his own ha ha about them laughing at him, I believe. So I'm, I'm assuming this is a Zoom issue. It does happen. It's happened to us. It's happened with me trying to connect to somebody for something. And it's also happened to, you know, people that we had booked to do some stuff. And it does happen. Usually you're able to get through it, though. I would say over 90% of the time you come up with some kind of solution. Uh, it's like your Brandon Marshall interview. Wait, when we when we had the wrong Brandon Marshall? Yeah, you just kind of did it on the fly, asked some questions, you made it work. That was you horrifying. Know, that was quick on your toes. Yeah, I don't. If they ever do a thing on me one day, be like, <laughs> you know, he had his strong points. He could have been better here. You know, some people really liked him. Others didn't quite get him. But maybe his <laughs> peak was. 
in the middle of seeing Brandon Marshall on Zoom going, that's not the Brandon Marshall we thought we booked. <laughs> what's it like being away from your team? <laughs> I to remember that was one of your questions. Yeah. Yeah, we had no been, idea where. What, what's, <laughs> so what's been going on, man? What's good with you? I just Thank picture God. like a hall, radio podcast hall of fame case. And it's like, yeah, you know, he was on a couple shows, kind of, you know, number two to Vim Pelt for a few years there. But like there was that one Brandon Marshall and he just he just nailed that. Like, could anybody else in the industry do that? That's your like that's your you're in the pantheon of incredible interviews because of that. Yeah. And look, it went well. He was terrific. And once I started, thank God I remember him because I liked him a lot as a linebacker with Denver. I'm like, wait, OK, hold on. And now some people could be Broncos. Be like, how could you have forgotten? Trust me, that, that's that's a pretty. Niche lane, especially when all the emails, by the way, were pitching the receiver. Yes. All right. So this <laughs> we didn't wasn't do a bad like, job reading. Yeah. No, this wasn't like we screwed it up. All of us on our end thought we were getting the receiver. We were pitched him. We said yes. We were good to go. No offense to the linebacker. But when he popped up on the Zoom, I'm like, what the fuck is going on in my head? And I'm just like, all right, let's go. It ended up being Drew. good. And you guys, you guys are boys now, kind of. Yeah. We hit it off. We were, we were, we were cool. I don't think we followed up a ton since then. But yeah, I think, uh, yeah, that I appreciate fun. That was one that. of the more fun days I've had. I felt like I was like at a sleepover and we just like broke the chair upstairs. It's like, I was like, whoa, what are we going to do? <laughs> it worked out. It worked out. <laughs> what an incredible analogy by Kyle. Okay. All right. All right. So our guy uh, doesn't show up. Then when he does connect, can't really connect, was unprepared, asked bad questions. Three, connection failed again. And I had to ask the PR lady. I hope he didn't call her PR lady. Uh, if I can reschedule the interview. Instead, she conducted the interview for me after I texted her some questions. What do I do? Has anything like this ever happened to you during your career at college? Uh, in college, I would have definitely missed a million <laughs> interviews, but I also wasn't nearly motivated enough to be involved in the student newspaper, radio station, any of those things. I remember my father would be like, hey, do you think maybe you should look into any of this stuff? I'm like, oh, dude, don't worry about it. I'll get to it. Um, so credit to you for at least being a little bit more motivated. Uh, I feel so embarrassed. I think I'm going to be known as the guy who doesn't take this craft serious. What do you think? Why do you think people would say that dude crazy um, yeah yeah <laughs> please help is there any way i can recover from this will the players be able to take me seriously going forward or am i totally overthinking this situation nobody's even thinking about it the way that i am uh well i hope nobody else is thinking about the way you are i hope for you it's a bit of a wake-up call to go look whatever you need to do if you're bad at skate you have to figure it out you have to get better at that stuff because if you don't get better at that stuff then it's going to be a really tough industry for you here's the thing i think i have the biggest problem with technical shit happens but if you knew you had to interview these players, then why were you not prepared with questions? Like, wh why, why did the technical part of this, why did all of these things happen where you weren't ready? Was it because you weren't ready because you completely forgot when the interview was actually going to happen and you were going to wait until the last minute to prep the interview? Um, because that's something that you're going to have to get better at in general. So I could tell you to be on it more and schedule. I don't know you. Maybe you fucked stuff like this up all the time. Uh, maybe this is a one-off and it doesn't really matter. What I would tell you to make you feel a little bit better is that a bunch of college baseball players probably aren't going to remember the guy that did a bad interview from the college newspaper because no offense to the college newspaper people out there, you're just not going to be seasoned enough as an interviewer at this point that you're going to stand out. And actually, if you ask like super complicated questions that were trying to be like a little Charlie Rose show off from the student newspaper, that might make you stand out because you'd be like, what's up with this person? So I would get over that part because they've probably already gotten over it. I would reach out to the PR person. I would go in person, okay? I would go seek her out. I would sit her down and say, I've embarrassed myself. 
I completely fucked this up and it was a big wake up call. And if there's anything I can do to prove it to you that this is important to me, let me know what I can do, whatever I need to do. Because if it is important to you, then you have to take that step. If it isn't important to you, then you don't have to do any of those stuff. Problem solved. But it sounds like this is important to you. It's amazing what people will do with that face-to-face interaction where, you know, look, you can solve a lot of problems. You can solve a lot of problems by you showing that you care enough to take out the time. And it's actually not that hard. And it is very simple. And if you come off as sincere and you seem decent enough in person, you're not an asshole. Um, this can actually work out for you. And maybe it's just a little bit of a lesson and you'll remember this. And it's it's great that it happened to you so early when not as much was on the line with all of this. So that's the other part of it. Uh, so I wouldn't worry about the player part, but I would say in the future, um, you never know. You know, you never know when you're going to be, you know, there's times where I can still not feel as prepared as I need to be. Um, but I'm, I'm guessing you weren't prepared here because you didn't know about the interview. And when you finally got connected, you were like, I didn't even know I'd be doing this today. If it's a habit where you're not prepared for interviews in general, then I would ask why you're even doing this. But I'm assuming it's the first part of it. So don't beat yourself up forever. It's not the end of the world, but make the steps that are necessary go above and beyond to fix this. Because I would like to think at the college level, everyone's a little bit more uh, accepting, even though it's so competitive. And there's probably a bunch of other people that love to be even given this chance. So don't screw it up again. I agree. It's like the, it's th- like, that's the time where you, you get to make those mistakes and hopefully they stick with you. And sometimes you, you make them after they're like, you know, uh, I remember I drove my mom's truck one time she would lent it to me and there was like the transmission light went on and I just kept fucking driving it for like the rest of the day until I couldn't <laughs> drive it anymore. And I was like, ma, something's wrong. So like, that's one of those things where it's like, you'll never forget that when the light goes on, stop, uh, you fail a class in college, you know, or you fail two classes and then you get that wake up, whatever. It's just, it's, this is a part where you learn those lessons and thank God you didn't have to do it at your job. Like now, if, if you do end up with that job, you'll manically, um, check your calendar, your Google calendar thing and keep it like, that's just one of those, just one of those things. There's, there's just a million ways that you can say, I learned a lesson for something, but you like, you sound like you're a little sick to your stomach about it. And you're wondering what to do. And you'll never forget that, you know, your, your editor could have told you, you know, could have warned you about all this stuff and basically taught you that lesson without you having to go through it. But you probably, it probably wouldn't have stuck in your brain and you'll never forget this. So I think actually it's probably, it's probably great that if you do end up in this career, you've got this embarrassing messed up thing out of the way now. I do like that Kyle found a, just a sliver of a chance of maybe blaming somebody else here too. Well, what do you mean? <laughs> He's like maybe the editor. No, I'm saying if your editor was like, hey, never, if you just said, not not this, but like if, when you start, he's like, hey, never be late for anything, never miss it. Like he was trying to tell you the rules and how not to mess it up. Like that wouldn't have stuck in your brain until you actually screwed it up and like, you know, kind of, you know, were unprepared and felt awful giving this interview that we, uh, everyone involved knows sucks. Right. I think it make, if it makes you feel better, like maybe cover a different sport next time, just kind of avoid that altogether. But at the end of the day, like I, I went to communication school, I took some journalism classes. And there are definitely some people that I went to school with who are now successful in the business, who are reporters, big network, anchors, whatever, who didn't have their shit together in college. And I'd be like, wow, that person ended up like kind of making, making, it, making it work. So I wouldn't worry about one screw up. Like, yeah, it's embarrassing in the moment, but it doesn't really matter long term. But you guys said the most important part. It's just a wake up and it makes you on edge for future things. So this one thing isn't going to ruin your career. Uh, but I think, you know, kind of figure out how to be better if you really want to do this thing. And I think that's just kind of the wake up call you needed. 
Yeah, by the way, people will still fuck up things. Like, I've still fucked up stuff. You know, I remember a couple times where it was just like, you know, I didn't, I screwed up the schedule. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, it's not like it never, like no one has ever done it. It's just bad when it's your first impression. And mm-hmm. some of the email I'm a little worried about, like, okay, do you fully understand what you need to do here? But yeah, there's nothing... There's really, I can't emphasize this enough. There's so much value on when you do screw up, show up, get your ass kicked a little bit. Own it. Yeah. And, you know, then don't argue. You're like, hey, I screwed up. Okay, well, here's your, well, this is where I see, I think you're wrong. on. <laughs> like, no, you're the one that screwed up. You're going to have to take some stuff. You may even hear some stuff that you don't even want to hear. You may hear stuff that you think, oh, this is actually inaccurate. That's not the time to fight that fight. All right. Another email here. Um, I may, well, I will repeat a story i know i've told before uh audience is growing though so these are some of those radio sort of slash podcast rules they used to tell us this kind of stuff it'd be like 70 percent of the audience was in the last six months i never quite believed all that stuff um but i think it was a way for people to kind of forgive you for being repetitive because when you were talking at least on radio 15 hours a week for that many years like stuff's going to get repeated and I know there's certain little lessons or stuff that I can tell at times. I'm like, I know I've told this before, but I think I will uh, repeat some of this stuff just because of the life advice part alone and how, uh, you know, just know there's more of an audience now. So our guys checking in about pursuing stand-up comedy, 57145, short guy. Thank you for confirming. Anyway, uh, I work in the news industry in North Carolina, but I just accepted a bigger job in New York City. I'm very excited about it not only for the professional advancement aspect, but to finally escape my hometown and try a different lifestyle. I've been looking at jobs in the city because I really want to hit open mics and try my hand at stand-up comedy. I don't love the corporate America grind, and part of me wants to do it because I fantasize about being able to hit the road and travel to comedy clubs around the country for a living, even if that means not making a ton of money. I work in news now, so I'm used to living average at best. Uh, I don't think I'll ever be the guy who isn't sure if he should buy a Ferrari because it could create bad vibes with his wife. All right, so we're talking about financially you're not worried about any of these things um because of, of you know wherever you're at cool got it all right uh i've done some open mics around town college it went well i was always the funny guy the friend group um but i know to be super funny and build a career you have to be pretty much all in on stand-up comedy fortunately i have a solid job to always fall back on but like i said i think the blue collar lifestyle of a comedian the potential of being that guy from the small north carolina town that blew up excites me more than anything um no he's very excited about this i'm going to leave out why he's super excited about life on the road as you guys can probably figure that one out on your own <laughs> basically i want to be a stand-up comic but i'm afraid of failure and feel my expectations may be too high they are any advice you guys have that would be helpful for navigating this whole situation managing expectations mindset pursuing this as a career okay well first of all i, I i'm always gonna tell anybody that is feeling these things to go for it i just am um, unfortunately there's also a real part of this where we all don't get to live out our dreams, but it doesn't mean you can't try. Cause I think never trying would be worse than failing. I really truly believe that. And as I know, back to my early days, which started almost exactly 20 years ago now. And when I was still kind of leading up to it, bartending and doing all this different stuff and telling people about my dreams and my goals, there was almost no one that's supportive. Okay. There's almost no one that tells you to go for it. Almost no one believes in you. And I definitely think men are tougher with each other on this stuff than females are. Uh, there were certainly a couple people in my family that believed in me. So that was very 
important. But at, at that point, I didn't really care. Like I wasn't going to listen to anybody because I do think this is another part of this where I would tell you older people um, that maybe have taken the non-traditional paths to success will tell you that when you're younger and you're telling people about some of your dreams and some of the stuff that you try to do. And again, like I had a John Morant monologue today. All right. That's not being a stand-up comedy star. That's not being an actor, actress, writer, musician, like shit. That's really, really cool, man. Um, that stuff I'm, I'm constantly like, I will respect the hell out of you for even trying that stuff because I know how hard it can be for so many different people that are trying. So when I would get bad advice, I started to realize, and maybe I didn't even realize it in the moment it was probably more as I got you know, more perspective and had a few years into what I was doing. It was like, I was getting bad advice, not because the person thought it was a bad idea for me necessarily, even though the odds are kind of stacked against you. Like we said in the very beginning of this whole thing, a lot of the bad advice and the pessimism that you get is because that person didn't try and they don't want to see you succeed for trying something they never had the balls to try in the first place. And that is a absolute fact of life. So once you get past that, you're like, well, why would I listen to this fucking person? Like, do they really care about me? Now, maybe the person that really cares about you, a sister, a brother, mother, father, maybe a really close relative, maybe a best friend is just your your guy. Um, maybe they're pessimistic because they know how hard it is and they don't want you to struggle and go through all those things. But I still think going through life in the first third of your professional life, whatever that time frame is for you, it's, it's not the same for everyone. I knew that if I did kind of the normal things that I would have something gnawing at me forever. And it was the same way why, you know, when I ended up leaving ESPN, even though I wish I'd shut the fuck up about the writing thing, um, I knew there was just something gnawing at me. There was like, I have to try. I have to try uh, to take this chance. Now, as far as how likely it is, I mean, you mentioned that you're, you're, the bar is set way too high for yourself. Well, why not? Who cares? What do you want to introduce yourself as a guy? Like, I hope to be average. You know, I hope to get jokes off that people laugh at like 40% of the time. I mean, why not be hard on yourself? I mean, you already know how hard this is going to be. And then you're going to have to kind of calculate your own level of discouragement. Like, do you get easily discouraged? Are you going to have a show if you do stand up and nobody fucking laughs? Are you going to go, I don't want to do this because it's going to happen. And it's not just about being funny, even though I don't really understand that much about it. But I think you start to realize the people that are really successful, it's the way they set it up, set it up, and then kind of pay it off. They learn the rhythm, the beats. They get their thousands of hours in. They know exactly how to read a crowd. Their timing is incredible. And it's not just, hey, I talked to my therapist yesterday. You know what I mean? Like the people, and again, my taste will be different than your taste. The funny can be very subjective. But I mean, that's the hours that you're going to have to put in and the times you feel like it's going nowhere. I mean, it's very rare is anyone that does any of these special things where they're just such a gifted person that they're so natural that immediately they're getting results. It just doesn't really happen. And so I'm telling you right now, much like anything that I've tried to pursue, I mean, shit, the traditional stuff can be discouraging, never mind the non-traditional stuff. But there are going to be moments where you want to quit all the time. And that's the point. That's why it is so hard. That's why people were so pessimistic about it. That's why people, some people would discourage you. Um, throughout the process because you're going to have times like I remember sitting in my car being broke being like fuck this and watching all these games and I got no I can fucking rub two 20s together like what's the point and then I'd be like what are you going to do you going to do something normal because you're not going to like that either <laughs> so you might as well just do this stuff um, so I'm going to leave you with a, a story on this because if whoever's listening to this you either don't get any of this and you think hey what's wrong with you guys why can't you get out of your own head which by the way you might be right but for the other people that feel like they have this creative thing and 
that's going on, it's inside, and you just kind of know, right? You just kind of know, and you either get past it or it just keeps growing and it's gnawing, and there's just nothing you could do, and you have to feed it, and you have to figure it out, right? You've got to get your answers to these, these thoughts that are in your head of like, can I actually do this? Um, because I think it's hard. I think it's hard to tell your friends, hey, I'm going to do these things because I saw it all firsthand. But one of my favorite stories, freshman year at UVM, I've told it to some already, so please forgive me for being repetitive about it, but I just think it's an important story because I'll never forget it. Uh, freshman year, guy we're in school with, love him to death, great guy, a lot of fun, love to have a good time. But when he got drunk, all he wanted to do was do karaoke by himself at a dive bar that none of us ever wanted to go to and none of us could even get into, but he had like the best idea out of everybody. So he could get in his freshman year and he would come up and he'd be like, Rosilla, let's go do karaoke. And I'd be like, I don't want to go with you ever to do that, ever. It's never fun. It's never a good time. No one can ever get in there. No one's in there that we'd ever want to talk to. And he would just Irish goodbye it. And we'd be like, where is he? Be like, I don't know. I think he went to JP's again. And we would be leaving our little place that we could get into. And we'd be walking back up the campus, another cold Vermont winter night, freezing our asses off with one guy in his yellow North face and the other guy in his red one, somebody in their black one <laughs> and mountain jacket, whatever vents on the side, NBD still have mine from 94. Just can't throw it away. And we'd peek in the window and there he'd be in his little yellow North face singing Hank Williams. And we would just laugh. And at the end of the year, we had a big, we had some end of the year meeting or fraternity. And he was like, Hey guys, I loved it here, but I got to transfer to Vanderbilt. I got to go to Nashville. Music's in my heart. I have to, I have to pursue this. And we were like, <laughs> we're like, are you serious, dude? It was the least supportive group of any people ever assembled in one room. And that guy's Dirk Bentley. I mean, he transferred Vandy. He's been nominated for a bunch of Grammys. He sold millions and millions of records. He knew he had something inside of him that was driving him crazy that he needed to figure it out. And he did. And it's one of my favorite stories of my entire life. It's inspiring. And he just didn't give a shit. He just didn't give a shit. He looked at a room of like 40 to 50 guys between 18 and 22 years old that all laughed in his face. They just laughed at him. Not one guy was like, awesome idea, dude. Great plan. What people didn't realize is that, <laughs> right, that he was also brilliant and he got into Vandy like that. They were like, no problem. And he just didn't give a shit because he knew no matter what, that's what he was going to do. He's like, I'm going to do this and whatever. And it doesn't mean everybody's going to turn into the next big country star or the next big comedian or even people that want to pursue sports. But You'll kind of know, you'll kind of know inside of yourself where you'll go, this is driving me so crazy that I have to figure this out about myself, or you'll just kind of get over it and go, you know what? I actually don't need all that shit because it isn't always a blast, man. It isn't. But you know what? There's a lot of other things, things that are normal. that are a lot easier to pursue that aren't always a blast too. So what would you rather do? I agree. And I think for like standups, Oh, my bad. I was muted. Uh, and I think for like standups, isn't it like you can't tour if, the, if it's this guy, you can't like be a road guy unless people other stops down the road want you. Right. So you basically have to do it at night 
in like, you know, wherever you can get up on stage, right? I mean, this is, the stakes are pretty low for this for a while until you're like, oh shit, it's actually going to start cutting into my, uh, you know, into my job. And I'm going to have to wonder if I can do my job. Like you're allowed to, you're allowed to do these steps because he's going to move, right? That's, that's the yeah, thing. If you're going to be, if you're going to be in New York city, this is actually very easy to pull off. There's going to be a bunch of places that I'm sure you could probably just, you know, I don't think you're going to be outside of the comedy cellar next week. All right. Um, but just being around it, I would think would be inspiring. You know, sometimes when you have this idea of what you may want to do at the very least, like being around it, you know, I remember I went to go like sit in and watch a radio station and honestly, after I got done with that day, I was like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but just being around it and then, you know, you're going to get up and nobody's going to laugh at you and you're going to either be motivated by the challenge or you're going to be so horrified you never want to do it again. But at least you'll have answered some of those questions. And that's what I, I think is always really cool about this stuff. I mean, I, I don't look, maybe we should have a comedian on and ask them about this, like the getting started and all that stuff. I'm sure there's horror stories. I'm sure there's parts of it that aren't a lot of fun, but I'm sure once you get past a certain point, you look back on it and you're like, you know, the iron sharpens iron stuff where you start to figure some stuff out. Maybe we'll pitch some jokes at Barkatsi again. Have him on. He loved that. That'd be great. <laughs> that was so well the first time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I actually have a cousin who is a stand-up comedian um, in LA. Plug. And Matt Chimber. Uh, he's 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 good. He's really funny. Grew up like small town Connecticut like me. He was always funny growing up. And he he always, I don't know if he ever like always wanted to do this, but it's something that like kind of like it was an itch that he had. And so he went to LA um he's an architect like had, an, had a full-time architecture job like a good job and he would just do clubs on the side for a while for years and honestly twitter and really instagram like blowing up like he does like skit videos now which he's got a ton of followers and i think that probably helped him i mean like ryan you'll appreciate this like he's uh, he's he's done shows and i think he's boys with like the chad goes deep guys so he's like in decent circles but it took him a while to get to that point and meet all these relationships i mean it's, it's kind of like a it's sort of a networking thing like you meet people on shows and now he, he does travel um, you know, he's not doing like, you know, arenas or anything like that, but he's, he's doing big stuff. He's been at the laugh factory in LA I and mean, it was like a very slow burn for him. And he was doing small stuff for free stuff on social media just to kind of get his name out there. And, you know, I, I don't know if his goal is like to be a full-time comedian. It might be, um, he's still an architect now, but like it is a grind and you have to basically know that going in. Like I remember in college when, you know, all these people, like we were like talking about journalism classes, right? People want to be on air. They want to be reporters. Right. And one of the things that one of my professors said, which I'm glad that they said because it, it was like the most important thing was like this isn't a glamorous thing at the start. Like you're gonna make 25, maybe even less grand a year for years trying to be like a local anchor in like Des Moines, Iowa or something. And that really like weeds out who really wants the job and who doesn't. A lot of people are just like, yeah, I'm just gonna finish out my degree and I'm gonna go into sales once I'm done. But there were the few people that did stick out and you know pursue their dreams of being an on-air anchor. And I, you know, I know people at major news networks now. So it just depends on like what you're willing to put in and how the work you're willing to put in early on when it's probably going to be pretty shitty. Uh, and I know you know that, but like just know that that grind is really, really hard. And it's not for everybody. Some people want to just like have a life where they, they, you know, make some money quickly. They start a family and everything is kind of like, you know, it's, it's just comfortable, right? And they're comfortable and there's really no risk taking. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But you have to know in your heart that you're willing to kind of take on those challenges and have there be hard times and grind for a while. And that's not for everybody. I think one of the most important things is knowing whether or not you're that person or not. And it's not binary either, right? It's not like either you quit your job. It's not like all the comedy clubs are like, oh, shit, Mark just quit his job. We got to get him in here next week. Like, that's not that's not how it works. So you can do both for, I mean, at least a foreseeable future until it's actually it's actually a, a real conflict of of 
work and and comedy. So, and by the way, that's supposedly what you want, right? Like that's the good problem. That's the problem. Like, hey, this is starting to pick up so much. Now I have some, but to be in New York City to have a job already and to have all of these opportunities, I'm not saying that like the highest profile places, but going to see other people, studying other people. And then trying your own stuff out and trying different spots here and there. And there's going to be an audience that maybe vibes with you. And there's going to be plenty that don't. And then you're going to start learning about your, learning about yourself. You know, that's, that's when like the growing up really happens. You start to go, oh, all right. You know, because I, I have always, you know, Saruti was touching on this a little bit before. I know the way I was programmed about what I wanted. But I also know that when I would talk to you know, people that weren't on the air that I became friendly with, let's say at ESPN, right? And I would kind of go, you know, hey, did you ever want to do something different and whatever? And they go, you know what? Maybe when I was younger. And then I realized like what you do, I don't want to have to do that. Every day I could have something to say. If I have, if I'm in a terrible mood, who cares? The red light's on, entertain us for three hours, all knowing the stress of maybe saying the wrong thing that day ends your fucking career. <laughs> you know, can you imagine like the days where, I have something going on in my personal life. And then it's like, hey, do you have a John Moran open for us today? <laughs> <laughs> you know, not that this is that hard, but that's why I don't I don't look at myself versus somebody who decided to go on a different path. Like I'll constantly go, maybe they were right. You know, I, I know it yeah. was right for me, but I'm not gonna say that that person's wrong. So, yeah, I remember doing that when I did the, the daily show with Scout, right? That that ended up not working out. Um, I kind of yeah, were doing like it every it day as much as I didn't really actually like it as much as I thought I would. I'm glad that I tried it. It didn't work out. Um, I, I didn't grow up like wanting to be an on air person, but I was like, you know what? I should just scratch the itch, try it, figure it out. And I actually didn't really love doing a show five days. Maybe you'll find that out. Maybe you'll find out you don't really like doing like, but, but like you don't know that until you try it. So go for it and do your thing. Um, but before we move on, I actually got a question for you because I, d- did you ever do karaoke with Dirk Bentley like I can't see you as a karaoke guy at all ah. I could never get into that bar but I, I couldn't even see you doing karaoke once like I could just see you being like nah I'm, I'm Ryan I don't do karaoke no I mean I, a couple of Coors Lights in me I've, I've been known to do some Johnny Cash <laughs> Johnny Cash okay that was gonna be yeah. my next question yeah no when I was younger I did it a couple of times That's really heavy sh- though real showstopper you doing like hurt by yourself <laughs> at some no. bar no, we did like, we used to do this thing where we, <laughs> my buddy would get a van and we would go to like every weird dive bar we could find in the outskirts of Burlington. So we wouldn't go to any of our regular stuff. We'd go to all these other places that we would never, ever normally go to. And honestly, it was one of the most fun things we ever did. And then we just, you know, we'd get banged up and we'd do karaoke and then we'd go into the next place or whatever. I mean, usually by the end of the night, people, we'd get some real outskirts places where we were like, were we just going to get jumped here or what? But, um, <laughs> Usually most of the guys we were with are pretty big, so it wasn't going to happen. Uh, yeah, nice. but no, it's, it's, it's been, there's a karaoke spot near me up here. I did go with somebody and she absolutely showstopper. She just, I'm not going to, I'm not going to share who it was, um, but she, she just knocked out of the park. There's some guy who did like a 13 minute. Uh, I'm not even going to say, cause it's sort of a signature move. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't wanna be sharing secrets, but there's a guy who did like a 13 minute door song. 13 minutes. Yeah. That's crazy. Now, yeah. honestly, yeah. he was incredible, but still crazy. You know, some people are just there for tacos too, you know? So, all right. That was life advice. Hit us up. Life advice, RR at gmail.com. Uh, great pod today. Really fired up. Hope you enjoyed it. Please subscribe. Ringer, Spotify. Thanks to Kyle and Steve.